The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Gone By. 90 minutes of talk radio, music, comedy, and more. Uh, it's that more that always scares people. Brought to you by Total Theater and Performing Arts Insider Magazine. It's 2004, people. 2004 years since Jesus Christ was allegedly born. Although some say he was allegedly born between 4 and 8 B.C., How Christ could have been born before Christ is beyond me. But anyway, roughly 1975 years ago, uh, Christ allegedly died. Although for Christians, they say Christ rose again and never really died, so it's really still 00 AD, or maybe it's MD, mid-Christ, if you believe in such things. I don't, so I think of it as 2004 AD, all Dave. That's me, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, journalist, humorist, and artiste, bringing you some New Year's evil on this first episode of the New Year, oh for heaven's sake. Did you have a good New Year? I did a whole bit last week about how this was going to be a much quieter New Year's Eve for people than other years because either they were worried about terrorism or money problems or they just got blitzed out by all that Christmas hype and had no energy left anymore to do up New Year's Eve. I took the day pretty quietly. My wife and I stay home. We had a friend in town coming up from New Jersey, so we ended up just going to a Chinese restaurant for an early dinner and hanging home the rest of the time. Early in the day, I did my New Year's cards by email. I don't send Christmas or Hanukkah or holiday cards anymore. It's a very time-consuming and kind of expensive process. You figure it costs you a dollar, dollar and a half every time you just want to say happy holiday to somebody. And if you get into the mode of sending cards, of mailing them to people, you want to keep it tight and relegate it to just the few special people you do it for every year. But then you start getting cards from friends and acquaintances who are all nice folks, but if they send the card, then you have to send a card. It's a quid pro quo thing unless you don't send any cards at all, which really makes life a lot easier. But I did want to say hi and keep in touch with a bunch of people, wish them well, and what better way than email. And I didn't want to be doing one of those bulk e-greeting cards. You know, you click on it, the music starts, some bear starts lighting Hanukkah candles, some reindeer jump over the roof and poop down the words Merry Christmas or whatever. It's okay, but I didn't feel like doing the generic mass mail thing. So I sent out short little individual greetings. Or at least it started that way. With email, it's free. So the temptation is there to send to as many friends and acquaintances as you can. And you never know if by taking that extra minute or two to get in touch with that person, it could lead to a networking thing or a job or an idea. But after the first dozen, it's like, Happy and Healthy New Year, Happy and Healthy New Year, Happy and Healthy New Year. This is how lazy that we've gotten in the modern era. you got no stamps to lick, no envelopes to buy, no need to get to a mailbox. And yet, 
It is still a pain in the ass to sit down and send a hundred individual emails, each about 30 words long. So by the end of them, I was like, Happy freaking New Year! Best wishes, Dave! And then even best wishes was too long, so I just went, Best, Dave! At which point I probably would have been better off sending a form letter for all people could tell that I wasn't. Anyway, process ended up taking more than two hours. I figured it'd be a half hour, 45 minutes tops. And as I said, it got very boring and repetitious. But the plus side is that it became a very direct reminder of just how many people contribute in some way to my daily life. Now again, these are not all close friends. A lot are acquaintances. Some people I haven't seen in years. Some I haven't talked to in a year or two or three. And some are more businessy press agents and theater people that I deal with. Kind of a symbiotic relationship. They give me press releases and invites and theater tickets, but I give them reviews and listings in return. So I review shows on this program, as I did last week with my good friend Charlie Gross, But even taking into account people that are mere acquaintances, the fact that it took me two hours to contact a few dozen people on the tip of my brain, I think that's a rather heartening thing, because I'm not a people person. Most radio people aren't, paradoxical as that seems. You think, here we are, sitting behind a microphone, trying to be entertaining and witty and fun to make the listeners' lives more enjoyable for an hour or two, And that's true in the abstract. Ultimately, though, radio is a very solitary and internal activity. The microphone goes on, and it's the equivalent of a spotlight in a cabaret act. It's all on you. The attention is on the guy whose lips are moving. So if I stop talking, time stops. If I stop talking long enough... You change the station. But it's basically the DJ, the evangelist, the talk radio shock jock, all in the same boat, all trying to hold an audience's attention. But not one particular audience member. It's a very generic thing. And you can particularize in certain ways. If people were to ask me, and people do ask me, what the demographic is for this program, Dave's Gone By, I can make certain vague assumptions about the listeners being on the youngish side, mostly white, perhaps, college-educated or some college, computer literate, etc., etc. But that could be way off the beam. In fact, I know from friends and relatives that I have listeners in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and black people, Indian people, Hispanic people, maybe not in huge numbers, but to generalize and say, My audience is such and such, and they earn such and such, and they drink so and so soda pop, is really a stretch and a very fallible one. And I'll be frank. Actually, I can't be frank. I'm already Dave. But frankly, the image I have in my mind may not encompass the wide range of listeners to this show. If I had to draw a mental picture of an average listener to this program, I would probably narrow it down to a demographic very much my own, because it's what I know, it's what I'm familiar with, what I'm comfortable with. And most radio people will tell you that on some level, you're also talking to yourself. Now, not in a crazy way, but especially in pre-planning a program, you have to please yourself in all endeavors. So the place to start is always, what do I find interesting? What makes me laugh? And then you hope that that translates to everyone else. 
because you trust your judgment and you've been doing it long enough to know what works and then to take some chances and to know when to pull back and go for safer material. But no, it's, it's all the ego again. It comes back to the speaker, that urge to be heard, to be listened to. It is not a communal experience on this end. On the other end, sure, that's what makes radio beautiful. When we had the blackout this summer and the TVs were all off, what did you do? You put on the transistor radio and you found the first station you could. Probably WABC, but there were a couple of others. And you listened for the news, of course, but you also listened for the comfort of one guy at the mic controlling the flow of information, controlling the tempo and tone of the show, and for the callings from people all over the area, Staten Island, New Jersey, Huntington, folks calling in to say, oh, my power went out at 3.15 when my kids came home from day camp, or, oh, my power just went back on a few minutes ago, or, oh, people are out on the street on the boulevard directing traffic and helping shop owners protect their stuff. Now, why listen to this? Your lights are off. You've got meat defrosting in the freezer. You've got candles ready for the evening. What's it matter to you when the power went off in Forest Hills or Hartford? What's it matter to you if people were walking home over the Brooklyn Bridge if you normally don't uh, take the train or do take the train? It doesn't. But you listen because you're part of this event, half in real life because your lights are out, and half vicariously, because you might have it much better or worse than the other people experiencing it simultaneously. And in that way, it becomes a shared human experience, with the radio mast, the antenna, as a kind of reverse lightning rod. It sends out the signal in all directions, with people in all different places picking it up and sharing the same sounds, but refracting them through their own opinions through their own consciousnesses. And you could say, logically, well, there's no connection at all. It's just two people listening to the same radio station and having completely different experiences of the program, one liking it, one hating it, for example. But I prefer to see it as a shared event, like a concert, like a theatrical play, where the experience takes on the all-important extra dimension only when people are there. Otherwise, it's just a rehearsal. It's just practice, just whistling in the wind. And a radio person, an on-air person, has to imagine that, has to feel that energy, or at least conjure it up to bring his energy up to a certain level. Because again, from this end, it's a one-person gig. It's the head of a pin, the light shines through it, and then disperses to a hundred, a thousand, a million people. I mean, maybe that's what George Bush I was trying to say with his thousand points of light speech. Or maybe he was just tripping on some bad whiskey his son was drinking. But because radio and writing and editing, these are solitary endeavors, it's easy to forget that there are scores and scores of people you deal with over the course of a year who generally make your life happen. And they don't always make life easier, but they usually try to and do. And the ones that don't, you don't remember their names, you don't send them holiday greetings, unless it's an office situation or a delicate family thing. So that turned out to be the greatest lesson for me in sending out all those emails. Just how many emails I had to send, I wanted to send. 
What's that line from the old David Bowie song, Five Years? All the fat, skinny people, all the tall, short people, all the nobody people, and all the somebody people. I never thought I'd need so many people. And in this case, that's a very nice, comforting revelation to have, especially around New Year's time, especially when we had our panic alert ratcheted back up to Code Orange with reliable sources saying there'd be some kind of terrorist attack on Christmas, and then it was by New Year's, and then it's sometime in January, somewhere in New York, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas, of all places. Maybe it was just the arrival of Brittany. So that apocalyptic, pre-apocalyptic Bowie song felt really apt around the holidays because the government, on the one hand, made you feel any minute could bring some cataclysmic twin towers too. And at the same time, telling us to keep shopping, go about our business, enjoy all New York has to offer. And they're right, because what can you do otherwise? If the Titanic's going down, and there aren't enough lifeboats, you might as well dance. And if the Titanic doesn't hit the iceberg, well, you're wasting all that time worrying when you could have been dancing. Which, I guess, is the mindset behind the whole Times Square New Year's Eve thing. I've never been. I've never wanted to go. And as I get older, I certainly have no desire to go in the future. Stand in one place for six hours with a bunch of strangers, freezing your butt off, having people scream in your ear, police everywhere, just to see a ball come down a building. And it's worse now, because of all the terrorism threats, I think you have to show up 18 hours beforehand just to get to the barricades. Happily, it was great weather this year, relatively balmy for the last day in December. But standing out in the bitter cold or snow just to stand there, I don't get it. And yet there it is, another communal thing. It was just one or two people or a small group. It'd be like the Polar Bears Club or something, kind of amusing to see on the news. But because tens of thousands of people do it, it's a tradition and a phenomenon, and from a distance, the distance of my home and my television set, it's very comforting. I mean, there's Dick Clark, and before that, Guy Lombardo. There they are, and there are those crazy people, waving their banners, wearing their funny hats, guys with their shirts off, couples kissing at the stroke of midnight. And of course, now New York makes a big production out of it, a glowing, lit Tiffany ball, fireworks, music, but even before that, when it was just the people, a massive throng of shiny, happy, sneezy people, it was nice to know they were there. They did it at the end of 2001. How's that for gutsy? Three months after 9-11, New York said, screw terrorism, screw bin Laden, screw fear, it's New Year's. That lousy old year is done with. Let's go out and scream and yell and drink and be really stupid as one big giant group. And of course, they do it now all over the world. That's the other part of it. At 12 o'clock in New York, 3 o'clock in California, 6 or 7 o'clock in London, on Conan O'Brien that night, when the clock hit 1 a.m., they celebrated the arrival of New Year's in central Belize. So there's a world aspect of New Year's celebrations that I would miss if they weren't there. Another reminder that humans are essentially pack animals. At their worst, they'll fight and cheat and steal if there isn't enough food or water or money to go around, but at their best, they just want to hang together and share a moment in time for reasons that go beyond explicable thought. 
Two strangers enter an empty Long Island Railroad train. They'll sit as far apart from each other as they possibly can, but put 10,000 strangers on the street and give them a reason to jump for joy, and in five minutes they'll all be huddled closer than baked beans. Two neighbors on opposite sides of the street haven't said word one to each other since they moved in three years ago. Then a monster snowstorm hits, and they're both out shoveling 14 inches of snow, and suddenly they're trading life histories. And so, if you were one of those people standing out in Times Square on December 31st, thanks for doing that, so the rest of us didn't have to. And if you're one of those lucky people listening to this radio program now, remember that you represent the millions of people not listening to this show, either because they can't get the internet dial-up, or they're working, or they live in a totalitarian country where you can't say words like Dick Clark or college-educated on the radio. You, yes, you, are the designated listener. And I realize that's an awesome responsibility. You have to pay close attention. You have to digest what I'm saying, and then share it with your brethren and sistren. You have to keep your pee breaks short. But your reward is knowing that through your listenership, the whole world is listening. Because the things you hear and think about will have an effect on you, and you'll have an effect on the people closest to you. And they'll tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's the Circle of Dave, and it spins every Monday night, 6.30 to 8 p.m. on WGBB, AM 1240, and AM1240WGBB.com. It's smart talk, silly talk, special talk, and music. Our 59th episode tonight, January 5th, 2004. So stick around, because we have the news gone by, a big batch of world events from a much more cynical perspective than I've been blathering about for the past few minutes. Tonight, we'll have stories about earthquakes, budget cuts, Starbucks, Mexican factories, the return of frivolous lawsuit time, M&Ms, and of course, the bad pun of the week. Also, tonight, a birthday tribute to one of the most innovative and long-lasting artists of the rock era, I mentioned him before, the one and only David Bowie. Be advised, as always, that most of the content is suitable for a family audience, but there may be a joke or two that's rated DGB-13, the Dave's Gone By equivalent of PG-13. Nothing too raunchy or offensive, but if you have an inquisitive eight-year-old, you might want to wait until he's nine, or allow him to listen to a replay of the show, but play it very, very slowly. Well, let's move quickly into the rest of the show. We have a lot of ground to cover. We'll begin by tying it all together with a song that inspired this introduction. Here's Bowie from the Ziggy Stardust album. One of these days it's going to be prophetic rather than just pessimistic science fiction. By now, I hope you've all had a chance to try the Tondor Grill Indian Restaurant in Rockville Center and its delicious appetizers and main courses of lamb, chicken, and fish. Now it's time to bring 300 of your friends, because downstairs they've opened the Bollywood Lounge, perfect for catering and parties. The Tondor Grill, 222 Sunrise Highway in Rockville Center, 516-766-4440. See the Indialicious menu at tondorgrill.com. 
What's the one thing everybody wants? Of course, it's love. And if it's love you're after, Friday nights at 6, we have the show for you. Long Island's Dating. An hour of live chat, interviews, music, everything about having happier relationships, whether you're single or coupled or wish you were both. Long Island's Dating, hosted with love by Bonnie D. Graham, 6 to 7 every Friday night. And listen at 6.30 for the sultry WGBB weather girl. Yeah, I did her. Oh, is this still on? Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB Freeport and AM 1240 WGBB.com. It's time for a look at the news gone by. A look at the world and local events of the past week from a 2004-word perspective. On the war and terrorism front... Now, you gotta give Tom Ridge and the boys credit for trying to second-guess potential terrorists. Yes, they do tend to be overcautious, and we're justified in fearing that to safeguard our rights as Americans, they're chipping away at our personal rights as Americans, but let's give them some credit. There hasn't been another 9-11 since 9-11, and they're not in an easy position. It's like playing a chess game where not only is the United States playing black, which means white gets the first move, but we have no idea who the opponent is, what he looks like, thinks like, what rule books he studied, what his methods are. You can win playing black, but it's almost always a defensive game. And extending the chess metaphor a little further, you take a chess master or grandmaster like Karpov or Kasparov, they're more likely to beat another master, almost but not quite on their level, than they are a weaker opponent who just walked in off the street. Because the second guy could come in and start moving pawns around and using knights and bishops in ways so unorthodox. All Kasparov can do is swag it out and hope the other guy makes a mistake, or isn't good enough to win the endgame. Anyway, this is all by way of saying that when you're trying to predict the moves of an unseen opponent... Anything's fair game. Which is why, I guess, the FBI put out a bulletin last Tuesday cautioning agents and police and airport employees to be on the lookout for people carrying almanacs. That's right, the annual almanac and book of facts. The FBI says that reference, that reference could be consistent with a terrorist's research and, quote, pre-operational planning since it carries information about population distribution, waterways, bridges, and landmarks. Terrorism experts aren't making a big deal of this warning, and even the FBI says you don't stop everyone on the street carrying an almanac, (laughs) if there were millions of people carrying almanacs on the street, but if they're loitering in a creepy way while reading the book, or the book is suspiciously annotated, well, that's as good as a smoking gun in the Patriot Act handbook, Well, I don't know. Again, I applaud the feds for trying to outthink the bad guys. But I never saw the Almanac as a handbook for Al-Qaeda. I mean, here, I I happen to have a copy of Poor Richard's Almanac, written by Ben Franklin in 1753. And there's no... Here, let's read a section. Paintings and fightings are best seen at a distance. Well, that's rather passive. No harm there. Haste makes waste. Well... A good terrorist does have to be methodical in his planning, not make any false moves, not leave any paper trails. Let thy discontents be secrets. Oh gosh, the bombers and the high command, everything they do isn't secret. 
danger is sauce for prayers. Well, now hold on. That could be construed as saying putting yourself in harm's way, strapping, let's say, a bomb to your head, is just what you should be doing for Allah. A pair of good ears will drain dry a hundred tongues. Oh my God, he's talking about torture. Ben Franklin is talking about cutting the tongues out of infidels if they don't talk. Half the truth is often a great lie. Well, the United States government only tells half the truth, even to its own people. This book is calling America a liar. He that understands the world best least likes it. I'll read that again. He that best understands the world least likes it. And then blows it up. Jesus Christ, this book is practically a Bible for Bin Laden. Tis easier to build two chimneys than maintain one in fuel. Well, wait, that, that must be code. Two chimneys, two towers, fuel, plain fuel, smoke going up the chimneys, and ashes coming down. Oh, that's it. Someone arrest this Ben Franklin character for sedition and burn this terrible book. Poor Richard's Almanac, my ass. They should call it Happy Ahmed's Training Manual. Sheesh, you think an old book is going to be harmless, and there you go. So, what is the fallout from Iraq? Not just in dead American soldiers, the most in a war since 1972, but still not a lot. I'm talking about domestic terms, though. Stock market seems okay again. Housing market robust. Job market seems to be recovering. There's the terrorism issue, everybody walking around afraid all the time, and airports turning into Fort Knox. And, of course, the deficit. We don't really feel the federal deficit, but when states are low on cash, that hits home. And so we get a report from the Associated Press that at the end of 2003, uh, state spending on the arts, theaters, museums, exhibits, spending on the arts has been slashed by a quarter, 23%, from $354 million to $272 million. Now dig this. New York went down from 51 million to 44 million, but is still one of the highest in the country. Michigan went down 50% from 22 million to 12. Florida dropped, well, I mean, that's about 50%. Florida dropped from the 30 million to less than 7 million. And you know the worst? California, the land of Arnold, the movie star. He's governing a state where arts funding, now granted, this was under Gray Davis's watch, funding went from $20 million in 2003 to $1.9 million for next year. That is a 90% drop. And the state of Missouri now has no funding at all. And you know the ironic part, this being a Republican administration and all, the National Endowment for the Arts, that big government federal funding of arts programs, the one Republicans tried to destroy a decade ago over obscenity charges, well, that went up. In fact, the NEA is as high as it's been since 1995, the year before Jesse Helms and his tobacco-spitting pigs went after it. Of course, high is a relative term. You know, $272 million to support all arts funding in America is like giving three candy bars to an Ethiopian and telling him to feed his family for a week. But hey... At least the NEA is getting more rather than less, even if it's just to take our minds off the fact that half the states in the Union give next to nothing. And I'll tell you this, if those states would take some of that lost money that they're now appropriating to other things, 
and they went to every crack house or abandoned store or welfare hotel or burned out building, and they used grant funding to build a theater, museum, or jazz cafe on that site. They'd save more lives and money in the long run than a thousand Code Orange alerts. And of course, if they were to fund this program, if Dave's gone by, we're going to get a chunk of money either from the government, federal or state government, I'm not choosy, or from general, generous listeners just like yourself. Well, that would bring about world peace and domestic prosperity, raise the national life expectancy, and make the ozone layer close up again. But don't let me pressure you. No, wait. Let me pressure you. Look, the economy's tough. We all know that. Money's tight, things are slow, but business goes on. People still need to know what you do and how well you do it. There's promotion and word of mouth, but if you want to reach a broader market and really get the word out, you gotta advertise. And I suggest you advertise on Dave's Gone By. People listen all across Long Island and around the country on the internet. So if you have a product, event, or service to tell them about, you can buy a commercial or sponsor a whole segment of the show. Compared to print, the rates are unbelievably cheap, and you get lots of added value, and you link your professional name to a special program with a loyal audience. Advertising on Dave's Gone By is easy, cost-effective, and fun. So get a piece of the Dave. Call 516-295-1511, 295-1511, or email davesgoneby at aol.com. Start your economic recovery right now. Returning to the news gone by on AM 1240 WGBB Freeport and AM 1240 WGBB.com. In world news, cleanup continues after a devastating earthquake in Iran killed more than 30,000 people. Who cares? No, I'm kidding, but let's face it, this one was horrible for about five minutes, and then everybody went back to Michael Jackson and Kobe Bryant. Maybe Iran is off the radar because people can't tell it from Iraq? Or people are still a little ticked off about the hostages thing, or maybe just too far away. Still, it's close enough to make some really offensive, inhumane jokes, which, as you all know, are my specialty. Jokes such as, what do you call 30,000 Iranians killed all at once? A good start. Or, why is an Iranian woman like Wilma Flintstone's wet dream? Because they're both covered with rubble. Or, why did they close the only Burger King in Iran? Because people were scared of the shakes. Now, the earthquake measured 6.3 on the Richter scale, by the way. That's pretty big. In fact, it was so strong, the camel's humps collapsed. And, of course, the earthquake has caused terrible shortages of basic necessities. Shortages of food, shortages of water, shortages of medicine, and worst of all, shortages of potential New York City cab drivers. Now, if you think I am being cruel, hey... A bunch of dead Iranians is no skin off my nose because this is what Akbar Alavi, the governor of the province capital, told the Associated Press. He said, and this is a quote, We greatly welcome any assistance from the United States. Now, the U.S. did send 150,000 pounds of medical supplies to the region. Now, quote again, We greatly welcome any assistance from the United States. We welcome assistance from all countries. Except Israel. Do you believe that? Except Israel. The man is in the middle of a freaking wasteland. I mean, it was a wasteland before, but there were people living on it. 
Here he is, surrounded by staggering human tragedy, a political leader whose job it is to help secure meals, shelter, and humanitarian aid for a mini Hiroshima, or Hiroshima as they pronounce it, and he's like, oh, sure, England, America, Taiwan, Chad, we'll take whatever you've got, give us a hand, but not Israel, we'd rather suffer as if Israel were offering, as if Israel wouldn't rather see you sand monkeys die, as if God and Moses aren't up there having a good giggle with a hand crank, Moses going, turn it another notch, let's get those scumbags up to 6.4, and God's like, no, 6.3 is enough, save some for Libya, they are totally due. Well, unpleasant little story in Newsday last week, Remember years ago, traveling into New York on the Long Island Railroad and passing that famous neon sign for Swing Line Staples? The letters blinking on and off sequentially it was a landmark and a reminder that that staple factory was a staple of Queen's Commerce since 1925. By 1950, they were shooting out two million staples a month. In 1970, the company was sold for $210 million and then... Thirty years later, what happens? All 450 employees are fired and the company moves to Mexico. So the same job an American woman was doing, making $18 an hour, trying to make ends meet on that, is now being done by a Mexican woman making $1.27. Now that is not something I pulled out of the air. These are numbers quoted in the Newsday article. $18 in Queens versus $1.27 south of the border. And by the way, the company's chairman and CEO earned $4.6 million last year. Now, to put that in perspective, if the Mexican woman wanted to earn $4.6 million, she'd have to work 80 hours a week with no holidays or vacation for 871 years. Now, the beauty part, get this, American brands, which own Swingline, American Brands has confirmed that it's now moving Swing Line from Mexico to China, where employees earn even less an hour than a buck and a quarter. If there is a silver lining, it's that executives at the company are saying the move is only temporary and that Swing Line will wind up back in the United States by the end of the decade. All they're waiting for is the point at which employees pay them $2 an hour for the privilege of working there. As incentive, the company might, just might, spring for donuts every Friday, provided employees grind the flour themselves. Also in labor news, the work stoppage continues at the Grand Central Oyster Bar, with employees picketing to demand health insurance and pension plans. One flyer they're handing out reads, quote, Since you won't find the same quality dining experience you are accustomed to, Please choose another restaurant during this difficult time. It means so much to us, unquote. The flyer is a little bit suspect, however, since it's signed not by the striking workers, but by the oysters. In legal news, it's frivolous lawsuit time. It's frivolous lawsuit time. People are liars. Lawyers are slime when it's frivolous lawsuit time. Yes, it's frivolous lawsuit time on Dave's Gone By an all-too-regular fixture of the news gone by where we look at a legal battle or maneuver that eats up time and tax money, all for the sake of eating up time and tax money. This week's frivolous lawsuit comes from Stamford, Connecticut, where the mother of a two-year-old boy wants to sue that city for an injury to her child. 
The boy was running toward a treehouse at the public playground when he crashed into a railing. The kid needed a few stitches, but he's fine. The mom blames the playground because the railing was apparently painted green and blended in with the landscape. Facility supervisor Joe Falzone, now that is F-A-L-Z-O-N-E, no relation to our wonderful and terrific engineer Joe Falzone, this is Joe Falzone, who says there's nothing wrong with the playground, no structural defects, no dangerous situations, but the mom still wants an undisclosed sum. She claims that because her boy is an actor and model, the time he lost recuperating cost him potential jobs and kept him from major auditions. Well, I don't know. Have we gotten to the point where we start awarding children money for running into stationary objects? When I was a kid, I once walked my grandmother's dog and started chasing another dog and ran me into a tree. Somehow I never thought of suing God for planting a tree on Ocean Parkway. It was there. I ran into it. And it's not as if they clocked it going 80 miles an hour, like those defective roadometers they always try to catch the police using when they're giving out speeding tickets. They always find one cop who's got a speed trap thingy that clocks a bush going faster than a Learjet. But no, no, in my case, the tree was just growing there, minding its own business, and I plowed into it. This kid was running around, going a little crazy, as kids do, He wasn't paying attention and clonk into the railing. Nobody's fault he was being supervised. He's a two-year-old! You let this kid win a lawsuit for running into a rail. That means blind kids can sue everything that doesn't beep. Two-year-old children smash into railings. That is what they do. They put their hands on stoves. They play with bees. They run with construction scissors. They eat everything on the bottom shelf of the cabinet. All two-year-olds are mentally retarded. They just grow out of it in ten years. So anyway, I'm sorry for this little kid. It was probably frightening and painful to get a cut and blood and stitches, and then stitches taken out. That's nasty. And I'm sorry if his mom lost any dough on the modeling circuit, but suing Stamford for negligence... Heck, in New York, kids would be thrilled to have a railing. Some playgrounds, it's a slab of concrete, and if you want to play basketball, you have to find a toilet someone threw out to use as a hoop. Yo, Tyrone, let's play some handball. All right, but if it bounces in broken glass, it's still in play, but if it bounces in dull crap, it's a do-over. But seriously, considering the intelligence of this kid who ran into the railing, the only part he missed out on was a ten-second clip on Jackass. As for the mother... Next, she'll be suing the monkey bars and the swing set because they were so obviously in on it, you could tell. Maybe she's waiting for a class action against the park benches. That's probably it. And when she files that claim, you know I'll be back here again singing, It's frivolous lawsuit time! It's frivolous lawsuit time! Ask for a million, you won't get a dime when it's frivolous lawsuit time! Oh, and while we are on the subject, the granddaddy of frivolous lawsuits. The legal battle that made this mini-segment possible is back in the news. Of course, I'm talking about that famous case ten years ago when a woman sued McDonald's and won because she burned herself handling their hot coffee. You remember that. The jury awarded her two million dollars because she took the hot coffee from the person at the drive through put it between her legs when she went to pay and burned her thighs. Hopefully nothing else. 
hot coffee just doesn't go with fried fish. No, but this idiot won two mil, although actually the judge later reduced the damages to half a million. And when McDonald's appealed that, the case was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. But still, it's hot coffee. Buyer, beware. If it feels hot when they hand it to you, either say, ouch, or don't take it. Or say, ouch, and drop it. And if they want to give you a refill, make them put it in a double cup or put one of those cardboard condoms around it to spare your fingers. But customers don't seem to be learning that. Or they don't want to learn it because now a woman from Glen Cove is suing Starbucks because she was badly burned by coffee that leaked from its container. According to the suit, the coffee, quote, leaked and flowed from the container on her bare right hand and arm, causing her to sustain severe burns, permanent injury, and scarring, unquote. The odd part is she is the second woman from Glen Cove to be suing Starbucks. This is true. Remember in 1999, another woman got a huge settlement because a Starbucks espresso machine exploded when she forgot to lock in the filter. Now, Newsday asked a coffee expert why the beverages end up causing so many skin injuries, and he did give a logical reason. He said, the tongue is more dense and less sensitive than skin, and can tolerate hotter temperatures than your hand or thigh. As such, Starbucks serves its coffee at between 175 to 185 degrees Fahrenheit. Makes sense, since in biochemistry, 175 degrees is the point at which you can't tell when something tastes like crap. in a cardboard cup. The trouble with the acumen society is coffee in a cardboard cup. No one's ever casual or nonchalant. No one wastes a minute in a restaurant. No one wants a waitress passing pleasantries like, Hiya, miss. Hiya, sir. May I take your order, please? The trouble with the world today is plain to see is everything is hurry gone by with sad news out of Egypt on Saturday. Mechanical failure caused a chartered jet of French tourists to crash into the Red Sea. All 148 people on board were killed. In fact, rescuers saw only body parts and blood in the water, showing that sharks had actually gotten to the victims before they did. 
As a tribute to the casualties, a state funeral will be held in both countries where scenes from the musical West Side Story will be performed. The gang rivalries will be kept intact, only here the jets go right down and the sharks win. Speaking of vacations gone wrong, Reuters reports that a New Mexico couple returning home from their week-long getaway walked into their house and saw the legs of a dead man dangling from their ceiling. The man was identified as 81-year-old Carl Smith, former husband of the woman of the house. He was stuck in an air conditioner duct, apparently after trying to break in through the roof. The couple said the house felt cold when they first walked in, so they went to the bathroom to see if the heater had been shut off, and they looked up, they saw the legs hanging from the ceiling. Asked if the man had starved or strangled, an investigator said, we're not sure, but one thing's clear, he definitely kicked off. Yes! 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 Turn off your air conditioning ducts, your oviducts, and your gooey ducts. It's the Dave's Gone By. Bad pun of the week! Every week we make a play on words so bad, you have to duct and cover. And we signal this terrifying event with the ringing of the comedy bell. It's a sound that says, ugh. But it's also a sound that says money, because you can advertise your product, event, or service in conjunction with this world-famous, well, domestically famous, well, Long Island, it's a bell. And listeners to this program know it, expect it, and enjoy my spiel connected with it. So put your money where my clapper is and advertise on Dave's Gone By. The rates are cheap, the pitch is potent, the results are remarkable. If you think I'm kidding, what's the name of that Indian restaurant in Rockville Center? That's right, the Tondor Grill. And it's across the railroad tracks down uh, what highway? That's right, the POW-MIA Memorial Highway, better known as Sunrise Highway. You knew that because you've heard me mention the Tondor Grill again and again. You've heard me talking about Performing Arts Insider magazine with everything you need to know about Broadway, Off-Broadway, Cabaret, and local theater. And I say these things again and again, and eventually they sink in. Because advertising on Dave's Gone By works on three principles, repetition, Humor and repetition. And it helps us reach thousands of listeners every week with my message and yours. So if you want an incredibly inexpensive and easy way to tell my listeners what you want to say, advertise on Dave's Gone By. Sponsor one of the segments, like the News Gone By, or the World Weird Web, or Dave's Gone Cultural, or the Dave's Gone By. Bad pun of the week. Call 516-295-1511 to find out everything you need to know. 516-295-1511. Between our local listeners and folks across the U.S. hearing this show on the Internet, you won't find a finer forum or a bigger bargain. 516-295-1511. One one or email Dave's Gone By at AOL dot com. Dave's Gone By no apostrophe at AOL dot com to sponsor the Dave's Gone By Bad Pun of the Week. Don't be good, be ponderful. Continuing the news gone by with food news, the herbal supplement Ephedra has officially been taken off the market. People had been using the Chinese herb to lose weight and build muscle tone, but health officials banned it because folks were dying from it. Ephedra stimulates the circulation by increasing blood pressure and speeding up your heart rate, so the pill is now outlawed across the U.S., 
Although rumor has it the Democratic Party has embargoed a special stock, and they're going to force-feed it to John Kerry. Also in food news, M&Ms are getting a makeover, or a make-under. It's a temporary gimmick with a big Willy Wonka-style contest to go along with it. As a marketing scheme, the Mars Company is decolorizing the little chocolate candies. Those two animated characters on the commercials, the yellow bags, the M&M candies themselves. No more red, yellow, dark brown, light brown. Light brown are my favorite. No, they're now just going to be two colors, two non-colors, black and white. Consumers seem to be taking the change in stride, although there is some controversy in the South where black M&Ms are being forced to sit at the back of the bag. No, but I spoke to the chairman of the Mars Company, which makes M&Ms, and I asked him why he's taking this risk with such an established product. Is it going to be like the fiasco with New Coke, for example? But he gave a very interesting answer. He's apparently been going through a very down period lately, rather emotionally distraught. So, well, for some reason he decided to answer me in song, and, and I have that uh, queued up. So, so let's hear the guy from Mars. I see a candy and I want it painted black. No colored M&M's, I want them white and black. I see the sweets roll down a long conveyor belt. I have to turn my head before the red ones melt. I see a line of dots and they're all white and black. They're so depressing, they're a suicidal snack. If I bite hard enough into a Milky Way, my teeth will hurt so bad that all I see is gray. No more of green and red or brown or deeper blue. And if it works, we'll drain the fun from Skittles too. I see the girls walk by and eating power bars. That's why girls come from Venus while I'm stuck working at Mars. I want to see you painted, painted black, black and white, no appetite. I want to see the browns, get the blues. I want to see the peanuts, 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 peanuts black. Yeah. All right, all right, all right, enough of that. But we stay with music and a little uh, music news. Murder, Inc. Records, a subsidiary of Def Jam, is changing its name to The Ink. Label founder Irv Lorenzo said at a press conference, quote, people have been focused on the negative energy of the word murder, unquote. Gee, I wonder why people think a rap music company called Murder, Inc. has violent associations. Could it be because Lorenzo goes under the nickname Gotti, or that the company is under federal investigation for laundering drug money, or because one of their performers was gunned down a couple of weeks ago? Well, 
In related news, CBS Records is actually trying to boost its street cred as an angry rap label by rechristening its letters CBS to stand for Crack Booty Skanko. In entertainment news, Fox Network, still trying to cash in on the reality TV craze, has a new show planned for mid-season. No joke. It's called My Big Fat Obnoxious Fiancé. Oh, uh, wait, it's not a new show. It's just the last two seasons of Roseanne. Also on TV, crocodile hunter Steve Irwin irked child protection groups with a scene on his popular program. He was shown holding his one-month-old baby in one hand and a piece of chicken in the other, and he's teasing a live crocodile with the chicken, making the animal jump for it while the baby's tucked under his arm. Irwin, who apparently has never heard the name Roy Horn, said his new son was, quote, overdue for a crocodile encounter. It is, of course, important to Irwin that his children not be afraid of wild animals, since he deals with them all the time. But as one broadcaster put it, what if he had slipped? That baby would have been croco-lunch. And it was also cruel of Irwin to tempt the crocodile like that. The only similarly dangerous situation I've seen on TV recently was when a fashion victim on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy bent over to pick up a Liza Minnelli album in front of Carson Kresley. Another animal story from Spain... A thousand-pound bull was on a truck headed for a slaughterhouse, but the beast broke through its cage, fell off the truck, and started menacing anyone who went near it. The bull blocked rush-hour traffic in Madrid as it shook off tranquilizer darts and resisted efforts to push it off the highway. Finally, police called in an expert marksman who shot and killed it. Asked if he hit the bull's eye, the marksman said no, but I thought his cojones are pretty good. Time for sports news. George Steinbrenner still recuperating from a fainting spell he suffered last week. Apparently, someone told him no. Also in sports, well, we already had our bad pun of the week, but let's make a little room for the bad metaphor of the week. It comes from Adrian O'Coin, star defenseman on the New York Islanders hockey team. The Isles were coming off a three-game winning streak against a trio of the best teams in the league. Asked to explain how the mediocre Islanders suddenly caught fire, O'Coin said, quote, Well, you know how it works. Sometimes the other teams start questioning themselves, and when a bee smells blood, he just goes for the jugular. I repeat, and when a bee smells blood, he just goes for the jugular, unquote. Now, you know, there are some pretty nasty bees out there. Those African sting you a hundred times bees and yellow jackets, wasps, but as far as memory serves... I think they tend to go for perfumes and food smells and pretty colors. I've never run across a blood bee, thank goodness, especially not one that goes for the jugular. I think they tend to sting whatever skin they get near when they're pissed off. They'll go buzzing around looking for a blue vein. Hey, Harvey, over here, sting till it spurts. Maybe they're starting to breed pit bees, specifically for swarming and viciously attacking lesbians on the way home from work. Still, you can't blame O'Coin for mixing his B metaphors. After all, the other team was bumbling, and he did make that comment at the buzzer. You know, I like where I live. It's a nice suburban town, commutable to New York City, quiet, well-maintained, but if I had to move somewhere else, if I had to choose another place in America where I would fit right in, I'd have to say it's Eustisford, Wisconsin. What? You say you've never heard of Eustisford? Neither had I. 
until I read that for 39 years on New Year's Day, Eustaceford holds its annual Toilet Bowl Parade. Every year it gets bigger and bigger, organizer Erica Grosnick told the Associated Press. Quote, it was started by three local guys who wanted something else to do on New Year's Day besides sitting around and watching bowl games on TV. Now, the parade features music and water fights and floats and spectators who fling toilet paper at the floats. And floats this year included one of Santa pulling a captured Saddam Hussein and a sled bearing Miss Poopsie 2004 being pulled by a team of four dachshunds. I knew I loved this town. And congratulations to Jason and Courtney Hildebrandt, who sold the most raffle tickets and therefore earned the title of Toilet Bowl King and Queen. Asked how they felt about that, they said they were happy but tired. In fact, said Jason, I'm pooped, and Courtney is wiped out. And finally, Toyland, Toyland, fun for girl and boyland, but not for Mattel, which lost two lawsuits last year that they brought against people spoofing or satirizing their world-famous Barbie doll. Last January, the courts upheld the right of Danish pop group Aqua to sing their song Barbie Girl with the lyrics, I'm a blonde bimbo girl. Then in December, a federal appeals court dismissed a copyright suit against Utah artist Tom Forsyth. Now, Forsyth used the dolls in his absurdist photograph series Food Chain Barbie to criticize what he called America's culture of consumption and conformism. To demonstrate that, he posed one Barbie, naked, on a vintage Hamilton Beach malt machine and called it Malted Barbie. According to the Associated Press, Forsyth also took pictures of Barbie dolls in blenders, wrapped in tortillas, and sizzling on a walk. Mattel worried that somehow these images would be construed as having company approval or having come from the company. Yeah, like, when was the last time you were watching Saturday morning TV and heard this commercial? Hey, kids, it's new Benihana Barbie. Fry her up tempura style or just glaze her like the vegetable she is. I'm rolling her in seaweed. I'm sautéing Barbie's cooch. No, but a federal judge dismissed the lawsuit, and rightly so. He went so far as to call the proceedings possibly groundless and unreasonable, and reminded Mattel of a little thing called the First Amendment. Quote, Mattel cannot use trademark laws to censor all parodies or satires which use its name. Unquote. The AP story says the artist, Tom Forsythe, made $3,659 selling the Food Chain Barbie photographic series. I mean, not a bad payday, but not exactly Maplethorpe money. And Aqua hasn't had a hit before or since Barbie Girl, at least not in this country. So obviously Mattel's been going after these people because it has nothing to lose. If they win the lawsuit, great. If they lose, they can afford it, while the other guy might go bankrupt just from the process. And win or lose, it's all good publicity for Mattel, makes them look like the defenders of purity and justice, because they're protecting the virtue of their beloved unblemished Barbie. And it's especially important now, in light of the recent scandal involving King's sexuality. Well, I can't go into the details, but let's just say the G.I. in G.I. Joe 
now stands for Gerbils Inside. And that's the news gone by for January 5th, 2004. Please send your comments, opinions, and malted Barbies to Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Dave's Gone By, Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. It is always a joy for me to get a response from people who listen to this show, great to know that people are listening, are having a good time, are counting the minutes until 21st century music. So send us a letter or an email, davesgoneby at aol.com, davesgoneby, no apostrophe, at aol.com. Send me cards, send me messages, but please, no M&Ms, and I don't care where they melt. Back after this. If you love Broadway, Off-Broadway, Cabaret, Opera, and Dance, isn't it time you subscribe to Performing Arts Insider, the ultimate guide to everything on the stages of New York. Listings, reviews, box office and production news, even Broadway rumors. To subscribe or get a sample issue, call 516-295-1511, 516-295-1511, or go to TotalTheater.com and click on Performing Arts Insider. Extra, extra, get your classic episodes of Dave's Gone By here, show after show of comedy, music, and madness, as only Dave can do it. Complete episodes going back to the very first one, only $12 for each audio cassette, just $10 a piece if you buy two or more. Relive such great moments as the Giving Chimp and the Dragle Game, and such musical magic as Making Poopies and the Dingo Ate My Baby. Classic episodes of Dave's Gone By, only $12 makes a bizarre but thoughtful holiday gift. For a detailed list of archive shows, check the Dave's Gone By website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. That's hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Or email Dave's Gone By at aol.com. Extra, extra, classic Dave. Hear all about it. Fantastic boy She turned to a roll And we never get old Remember it's true Dignity is valuable But our lives are valuable Somebody's depression And I don't want to live With somebody's depression We'll get by I suppose It's a very modern world But nobody's perfect It's a moving world But that's no reason Shoot some of those missiles Think of us as fatherless scum It won't be forgotten But you'll never say to Dave's Gone By as we take a fantastic voyage into the life and music of David Bowie. A brief 
voyage, just a taste really, of this tremendously influential and creative rock musician who turns 57 years old on Thursday, January 8th. Born David Robert Jones in the Brixton area of London, Bowie very quickly gravitated to the arts, theater, mime, and music. In fact, he felt the need to change his name so he wouldn't be confused with Davy Jones of the Monkees. Why he chose Jim Bowie, a soldier killed at the Alamo, as his namesake, remains as mysterious as Bob Zimmerman choosing Matt Dillon and Dylan Thomas for his pseudonym, but hey, someone like Bowie, transformation was all. Other rock stars dressed up, put on makeup, wore funny costumes, everyone from Little Richard to Screamin' Jay Hawkins, and then Bowie's contemporary Alice Cooper. But Bowie was really the first out of the box to explore different characters, androgyny, and kinky otherworldliness. And make no mistake, while it was about art and ingenuity, it was also about marketing and packaging and supersized entertainment. Bowie concerts turned into an event, a spectacle, with Broadway-caliber designers doing the sets and special effects. It was all about playing everything to the absolute limit in art and life, and living to excess. There's a famous scene of Bowie, I think it's well after the Ziggy Stardust era. Might have been around Aladdin's saying, with Bowie being interviewed in the back of a limousine. And you can tell he is completely freaked out, stoned beyond comprehension, and sniffling worse than any flu victim. Somehow he pulled back from that abyss, although drugs were a part of his life and persona, long after he moved away from crazy makeup and locked up the diamond dogs and cracked actors. In fact, when Bowie was making the best music of his career, the years with Eno and Lou Reed and producing records for Iggy Pop, he was still out of control. In an interview with Contact Music last year, Bowie's quoted as saying that in the late 1970s, quote, I weighed 90 pounds. Some of the photos I've seen of myself, which fortunately have never been published, I can't believe that I survived. I was surviving on green and red peppers and drinking milk. I looked so ill I was a walking skeleton, unquote. Of course, on the album covers at the time, he was a thin white duke, developing the elegance and model swagger that he still has 20 years later when he looks better than he ever did. And the ironic thing was that as he got healthier in the 80s, his music got much more slick and commercial. Now, I know I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say that. It plays right into the hands of those who say, well, drugs fuel creativity and drugs put you in touch with a muse you wouldn't explore otherwise. And certainly Bowie took control of his life and finances in a way he never could when he was living on or past the edge. But there isn't an album Bowie made in the 1980s, however catchy some of the songs were. And I'm not counting Scary Monsters because that was probably recorded at the end of 79. I wouldn't trade any 80s disc for nearly any he made in the 1970s. Whatever he was doing, be it glam rock, plastic soul or electronic minimalism musically those were his golden years Look at the 
1990s and 2000s is that he's older, he's wiser, and he's gone back to experimenting again, playing with the fringes of rock and roll, working very hard to balance, in an intelligent way, the demands of being a corporate superstar, the greater demands of being a vital rock artist, the joys of taking risks on new soundscapes and ideas, while also going back to both the elemental needs of rock and roll and the internal landscape of a man living through the second half of the 20th century and beyond. We'll hear one more Bowie song in a couple of minutes. If you know me, you can probably guess what it is, but got to finish up some business on the show, some show business, if you will. Time to remind all of you that it's easy to get in touch with me. Write to me. Tell me what you think of David Bowie, of the News Gone By, of the Dave's Gone By show in general. Just email me at davesgoneby at aol.com. No apostrophe, davesgoneby at aol.com. Or write to me, care of Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557. We reserve the right to read your letters on the air, and as proof, here's a couple of recent ones. Bruce from Woodmere emailed after I played the Tori Amos song, Pretty Good Year, last week. Bruce says, hey Dave, how about some music from Tori's anus? Well, Bruce, I'd love to, but 
No, I'll have to wait for another holiday, maybe on Keister Sunday. I got a nice email from Jeannie Lieberman, theater critic. She's been on the program a couple of times and wrote to say, Happy New Year and wishes for many more programs together. Likewise, Jeannie, I think that would be great. And an email from Art Paul Schlosser. Had him on the show a few months ago, live, by phone, from Wisconsin, playing his special brand of folk and novelty music. Well, Art emailed to say he just had a birthday. He turned 44 yesterday, January 4th. So, happy birthday to you, Art Paul Schlosser, and many, many more, and many, many more songs. Also a note from Bonnie D. Graham, host of Long Island's Dating, on this radio station, Friday nights at 6. Bonnie says, all the best for good health, plenty of laughter, and the fulfillment of your dreams. And yes, Long Island will still be dating if I have anything to say about it. Bonnie D. Graham, Friday nights at 6, which leads me very neatly into the thank you portion of this segment. Thank you to a bunch of good people for their help and support, including, of course, engineer Joe Salzone. I was on his show last night. That was a treat. It was tremendous fun. And look for that segment on television in a week or two. It was videotaped and should air on Joe's cable TV show, Sundays at 1 on Cablevision Channel 20. It'll probably be this coming Sunday. Um, so keep checking Sundays at 1 p.m. on Cable Channel 20, Long Island Cable. Joe has only one TV show, but he's got a whole slew of radio programs on GBB, including Your World with Joe Salzone, Radio at the Speed of Now, Sundays at 6, Your World After Dark, Sunday nights at 11, Live at Night, Mondays at 11, so stay tuned for that, and, of course, he's on Monday nights at 6, just before my show starts at 6.30. Thank you also to the Tondor Grill, 222 Sunrise Highway in Rockville Center. See their menu at tondorgrill.com. Not tandoori, tandoor. Leave off the last I for, you got it, Indialicious. Thank you to my mom and dad for a delicious New Year's Day dinner. Uh, thank you to my Auntie Esther for a lift yesterday, <laughs> and thanks... Oh, oh, on my last program, you know, I did a whole list of reasons to be thankful and grateful for the year that just passed, and I'm sure if I do another list this time next year, my mother's duck, Laurange, will be right at the top. Thank you also to my in-laws, the Wiles, for a pretty tasty Christmas meal, if I do eat so myself. And of course, thank you to my incredibly loving and devoted wife, Joyce, without whom 2004 would not be possible. Don't ask me why, it's just that way. And thank you, listeners, for listening, for supporting me with your ears, or with your advertising and sponsorship, or buying my book, or cassettes, or past episodes, every penny you spend on the program, just like every precious minute you spend on it, only goes into making the show stronger and better. For more information about supporting the show, or just to learn about Dave's Gone By, check the website hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. There's no www, it's just hometown. AOL.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. If you forget the URL, just Google search Dave's Gone By and we are right up top. And one last thank you to the birthday boy, David Bowie, born January 8, 1947. If he'd only done one song, if he'd only written this single composition in collaboration with Brian Eno, if he'd done nothing else but this, he'd be a legend for the ages. 
I can think of no better way to start the new year and end this show than with this song. And it just remains for me to say that I'll be back next week, January 12th, with the 60th episode of Dave's Gone By. Looks like we're going to have a special guest. It's not 100% confirmed, but I will probably be talking to Karen Grasley. You remember her as Carolyn Ingalls of Walnut Grove, where she and Michael Landon lived in a little house on the prairie. Yep, Karen Grasley. Well, she's currently making the talk circuit, and she's circling our way next week on Dave's Gone By. So Karen Grasley, plus a whole bunch of other cool stuff, next week, 6.30 p.m., January 12th. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night. Off to a good start. And gone by. Together